traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Welcome to the Contrarian Investor Podcast. We give voice to those who challenge a prevailing sentiment in global financial markets. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Nothing on this podcast should be taken as investment advice. Guests were not compensated for their appearance, nor do they supply payment in order to appear. Individuals on this podcast may hold positions in the securities that are discussed. Listeners are urged to educate themselves and make their own decisions. This podcast episode may have ads and the occasional announcement. To listen without ads or announcements and take advantage of a host of other benefits, consider becoming a premium subscriber. Visit the website contrarian.supercast.tech. That's T-E-C-H for more information. Now, here's your host, Mr. Nathaniel E. Baker. I'm here with Jared Dillian, author of The Daily Dirt Nap, very well known in financial circles, especially on the social media to the extent that social media still exists since Elon Musk took over Twitter and renamed it. Another story for another day. But Jared here, as I said, very well known, but we're going to talk about your background and and all the other things, including this book that you wrote called Those Bastards. And I'm going to ask you all about that in a bit. But first, since this is a contrarian investing podcast, not the contrarian life podcast, although maybe it could be, but we are talking about economics. And in nowadays, it looks like the soft landing scenario is the base case. In fact, it may be not even soft landing, but no landing. It seems that the economy is just going to continue to chug along. Markets are certainly buoyant. Bond markets have recovered. Stock markets have recovered over the last month or so as we record this on November 29th. But you are not buying it. In fact, your view is that a recession is coming sooner rather than later. Is that right? And talk me through it. Well, I guess. I mean, like, so I have this recession call, okay? And the reason I have a recession call is because I'm bullish on bonds, specifically two-year notes. And if we get a recession, then two-year notes will go up, like yields will come down. But I don't really care if we have a recession as long as yields come down. Like, that's really all I care about. What we've had in the last couple of days is some Fed speakers, most notably Christopher Waller, who who have basically brought forward a bunch of rate cuts into you know into the future. And you know, if you if you look at the history of this, like first, you know, the first rate cut was priced into August, and then it was priced into June, and then it was priced into May, and now it's becoming consensus that it's going to be March. I mean, honestly, it might be January. If we get two bad payroll reports, it might be January. So, you know, look, the economic data has been terrible. Like, it's just been uniformly terrible with the exception of really the data around consumer spending in the labor market. Like, retail sales around the holidays were kind of okay. They weren't, you know, they weren't amazing. The claims numbers are starting to pick up. 
payrolls are starting, you know, non-farm payrolls are starting to crap out a little bit. Um, but it's nothing egregious. You know, we've gone from 3.5 to 3.9% unemployment. You know, I think if the next payroll number was 4.1 or 4.2, that would get people's attention. You know, so I, so like I said, I think we're going to get a recession. I don't think it's going to be a terrible recession. I think it's going to be pretty mild. But yeah, I mean, we are, we have had a gradual slowdown in economic activity over the last 12 months. And yeah, it's, it's, you know, I think the Fed, which did have rates at five and a half percent, I think it's going to two and a half or three percent Fed funds. That's where I think we're going. So, hmm. all right. So, I mean, undermining all that, basically, I mean, the Fed has to cut or at least be less hawkish if, to the extent that they even are hawkish anymore. It doesn't sound like they are. But if you're going to be long, short, short, the short end of the curve, right, you're going to need Fed, you're going to need interest rate cuts eventually, right? Yeah, which is going to happen. I mean, mm-hmm. look, like it, just today, core PCE came in at 2.3%. And that's the that's the Fed's preferred measure of inflation is core PCE, 2.3%. And if Fed funds are at 5.5%, then you have real interest rates of 3.2%, real interest rates. So sort of equilibrium real, real interest rates over time are positive 2%. We are above that right now which means that monetary policy is very restrictive. And just to bring it down to equilibrium levels, you need to cut rates to about four, four and a quarter, you know? Mm. Um, So this happens in every cycle. The Fed always does too much. They always hike too much. Uh, And at the end of a hiking cycle, they always say they're going to keep rates high for a long period of time. And inevitably, within a period of about six or seven months, they start cutting rates because it becomes clear that they overhiked. And that's what's going to happen this time. Hmm, fair enough. But you do still have inflation. Uh, it's not it's come down a lot. No question. But it is not yet at the two percent level where the Fed supposedly needs it before they can cut rates. I mean, you mentioned the core PCE, but uh, that's a, that's a quarterly, right? It was part of the GDP report, isn't it? Yeah. 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 And the monthly one we get tomorrow. Yeah. So, yeah. So there's that. And then there's also, I mean, the employment, unemployment may have come, come up a bit, but we're still pretty close to full employment, aren't we? I mean, 3.9% is not bad at all. Yeah. It's not bad. And also a lot of that is because the labor force expanded. It's not Mm -hmm. really because of layoffs per Mm -hmm. se. So yeah, I mean, the labor market is still pretty strong. We're just going from a period of restrictive monetary policy to a monetary policy that is neither accommodative or not accommodative. So, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but it sounds like I mean the other thing is that these past in past cycles when they cut rates, it was almost always due to a catastrophe, whether it be COVID in in, in the early 2020 or before that. The last time you have to go back to uh, you know 08 09. And but even if you go back further, you know, the early 2000s or, you know, they cut rates for long term capital management. If you want to go back to the 90s when they maybe didn't need to um, another topic for another day. But so you don't you you think they can. So that's kind of always what's what's precipitated these rate cuts. But you think they can do that anyway? Yeah, I mean, you you have to pay attention to what the Fed says and you have to pay attention to what they do. Hmm. And. Uh, there's been some other speakers, Bostic included, that have sort of echoed Waller's remarks. Um, there seems to be consensus at the Fed 
that at least in the short term, they have done enough about inflation and that even if they do cut rates a little bit, that inflation will continue to come down. They are of the belief that even if they do nothing, inflation will continue to come down. Um, and I believe that too, at, at least in the short term. So, mm-hmm. okay, fair enough. I mean, lastly, though, you have you still have Jay Powell, right? And he seems maybe he's the last hawk standing there, but he is known to make some comments that maybe are a little more hawkish. And he did this a couple of weeks ago, not at the Fed meeting, but afterwards at some speech, and he managed to spook the markets for a day. But um, and he speaks on Friday, supposedly. So, do you think there's a chance that he's? So you really think the Fed is settled on this? You don't think there's any hawks left standing there? No, I don't. I don't believe that. I mean, within the 19 members of the Fed, you have 19 different opinions, and Jay Powell has been the hawk for sure. And pretty much at every Fed meeting for the last six Fed meetings, he has said something at the press conference that has tanked the bond market. You know, right. and some of it is boilerplate. You know, he makes comments like the Fed has to be vigilant about inflation, you know, just stuff like that, which is pretty boilerplate, but which is a hawkish thing to say and is interpreted hawkishly by the bond market. Um, I don't think I don't think for a second that the Fed is complacent about inflation. I think if you saw inflation start to tick up, for example, um, you know, you would you know, you would see this entire trade reverse. But but like you said at the beginning of this. I would say in the last two days, yesterday and today, we have kind of reached that soft landing consensus, you know, um, mm. and, you know, the, the bond market has rallied a lot. So, yeah. Yeah. So I guess it would maybe buying the dips in the two year these last couple months would have been a good move. Sick of me yet? Become a premium subscriber and avoid all ads or interruptions. Other benefits as well. Visit contrarian.supercast.com dot tech for more information. So obviously the the risk one of them with bonds is inflation. And so okay, so over the short term the Fed's reach you know they're they're done hiking rates and and uh there's you know their the next move is is to cut. So but over the medium term wouldn't that kind of bring in couldn't or couldn't that bring inflation back into the picture? Wouldn't that be a concern if you're a long-term holder of short-term paper? Well, I mean, the answer is yes, but very slowly, right? And, you know, even Larry Summers sent this chart around. There was a chart going around Twitter, and people didn't really pay attention to it until Larry Summers sent it around. But it's a chart of inflation in the 1970s. And basically, in the 1970s, you had three waves of inflation. You had CPI get up to about 4 or 5% in 1969. Then you had, then it came down, then it went up again in 1973, 74 to about 7 or 8%. And the Fed responded to that and it came down. And then at the end of the 70s, it obviously came up to like 13, 14%. Um, So you had three waves of inflation. And a lot of people think, and I I also think it's a possibility that the same exact thing could happen this time, you know, and one of the reasons I believe that's possible is because even though we've succeeded in bringing inflation down, there exists an inflationary psychology in the general population. Like people believe that there is still high inflation. Part of the reason they believe that is because they have a static view of prices. 
you know, they go to the grocery store and it used to cost 150 bucks and now it costs 250 bucks and they still have memory of when it costs 150 bucks. So they think that inflation is really high. But Wall Street people look at it as the rate of inflation and the rate of inflation has come down from 9% to 3%. So we've done a lot. Mm -hmm. So, but we still have this inflationary psychology. And if people believe that prices are going higher, they will act in such a way that will make prices go higher. So yeah, I think it's I think it's very possible we could have another wave of inflation. Um, we haven't done enough to break the psychology. And in order to break the psychology, you need to cause a recession severe enough that actually causes deflation, that cause that brings prices down. And the Fed uh, has been unwilling to do that. Um, I'm not saying whether they should or shouldn't like that's I'm not making any normative statements about that, but they didn't do it. And I think I think it's very possible that in a couple of years we could be dealing with inflation again. Mm -hmm. But for for now, that doesn't concern you from buying uh, treasuries. No, no. Right. And you think it's a better a better investment now than stocks or other assets? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, look, I've been pretty public on Twitter that. Um, you know, over the last three months, I've built a pretty large position in two-year note futures. And um, that's, you know, this week that's paying off. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I you know, like I said, I think, I think we'll get a mild recession. I think there will be a bunch of rate cuts, probably more than people think is possible. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't think people are really thinking about two or two or three percent Fed funds right now, but I think ultimately we'll get there. So yeah, yeah. well, people sure weren't thinking about five percent Fed funds back in twenty twenty yeah. even twenty one, right? And look what happened. Very interesting. All right, Jared Dillian of the Daily Dirt Nap. I want to take a quick break and then come back and ask you some more stuff about your background, about this book, and some other things. If you are a premium subscriber, you will not get the break. So don't touch the dial and we'll be right back. In fact, we already are. Everybody else to become a premium subscriber, visit the website contrarianpod.substack.com and sign up. We hope you're enjoying this episode of the Contrarian Investor Podcast, where we give voice to those who challenge a prevailing narrative in global financial markets. Consider becoming a premium subscriber. For $9 a month or less, premium subscribers receive a number of benefits. Podcasts are posted immediately after they're recorded. Transcripts are made available within 24 hours. Premium subscribers get direct access to the host. And of course, there are no ads or interruptions. Visit contrarian.supercast.tech for more information. By the way, you don't need the .tech suffix to get to that website dot com will do the trick and we also have a Substack that you can where you can sign up for the same prices same benefits same details contrarianpod.substack.com so if you already have a Substack account and use it or have the app and use that that's probably the best way to go so contrarian.supercast.com or contrarianpod.substack.com. Whole bunch of benefits, including, of course, getting this episode up to a week early without ads or annoying announcements. And you also get the Daily Contrarian briefing and podcast that is released every market day morning at 7 a.m. 
This is a contrarian take on the events of the day ahead and what is likely to move markets, such as economic data releases, earnings, and other things. It is really good, and that is completely unbiased, of course. So check that out, contrarianpod.substack.com or contrarian.supercast.tech. Now on with the show. Welcome back, everybody. Here with Jared Dillian in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Is that right? Yep, that's right. Nice. Okay. And uh, you are uh, very like I've known on Twitter, and you wrote this book, Those Bastards. How did you get into investing in the first place? I didn't get that far in your book. I only got to where the, you're in the Coast Guard. So yeah, well, yeah. So I used to be in the Coast Guard, and right. um, I'll tell you, Coast the Guard story. Academy. You did that right after high school, up in yeah, New yeah, London, yeah, right? yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, I was stationed on a Coast Guard cutter in in uh, Washington State. And uh, I had a buddy on the ship who, you know, whenever we would pull in the port somewhere, he'd go to like a newspaper vending machine and he'd get a newspaper and he'd come back to the ship and he would open it to the money section. And I was like, dude, what are you doing? And he said, I'm checking my mutual funds. Hmm. So I'm 23 years old. And I said, what is a mutual fund? So he explained it to me. And I didn't get it. I wasn't understanding it. And I'm like, I'm like, how much are you making in these things? He's like, oh, like 15, 20% a year. I'm like, 20% a year. Like, so this was 1997. So yeah. this was a good time to be in mutual funds. So I said, I'm getting 5% a year in my bank account. How do I make 20% a year? So I was motivated by greed. And I went to the bookstore in town and I got some, the first book I bought was a random walk down Wall Street. And I bought some books on mutual funds. And I started reading about this stuff. And that's when I started investing, you know, was I was 23 years old in 1997. Um, and then I decided I wanted to be a trader on Wall Street. I, I said, I want to I want to leave the Coast Guard and I want to pursue a financial career. So this is a much longer story, but um, I ended up getting a job. I, I got I got stationed in the San Francisco Bay Area. And I was working for the Coast Guard. I had a shore job. And I got I got a second job on the floor of the Pecos Options Exchange as a clerk. Um, so I was working on the options trading floor. And from there, I interviewed at a bunch of banks. And I got hired by Lehman Brothers. Uh, I worked from Lehman Brothers from 2001 to 2008. Started off doing index arbitrage. And then I did ETF trading. Um, and had a great career there. And after that, I quit and started the daily dirt nap. Hmm. Wow. That was not long ago that you started it. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And is it, it's now on Substack, right? Or, oh no, no, oh, no, no, no. Okay. No, it's oh right. No, no. It's, it's, it's own thing, right? Yep. Yep. And was it always just online or were you at some point sending out physical copies? It, well, I've never sent out physical copies. It's always been online, uh-huh. but I can tell you in the beginning, I was taking orders via fax. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, well, yeah. Well, I mean, well, my career started, we were actually physically putting together newsletters. This is in the early 2000s and sending them yeah. out to, to de- people. We'd send, put them there on Friday and people would get them on Monday at their desks. Yeah, um, that's wild. So, but now, so this newsletter obviously is just... Uh, it, it's you know basically your, it's not investment advice it's just your thoughts on the markets and yep. on other things mainly so then how did you come to write the book 
Well, the, so the book that you have is my third out of four books. Okay. So um, the first book was Street Freak, Money and Madness at Lehman Brothers, which was a memoir about working at Lehman Brothers. Uh, that got published by Simon & Schuster in 2011. Okay. And then in 2016, I published a novel called All the Evil of This World. And then you have Those Bastards, which was published this year in April. And my fourth book is coming out in January. It's called No Worries, How to Live a Stress-Free Financial Life. And nice. that's being published by Harriman House. Right. Oh, okay. Wow. Okay. So I was not aware of this. Do you know this guy, Larry, Larry McDonald? He wrote, he was at Lehman. I know him well. Yeah. 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 He, I interviewed him at, at, when I was at Bloomberg back in, this is right after 08, 09, because he wrote that book. Colossal um, Failure of Common Sense. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. So what was that like at Lehman Brothers? It was, it was, it was an, it was an amazing place to work. I mean, um, like lots of super talented people, like people kind of throw around the word entrepreneurial, but like, it doesn't really capture what was going on there. Like if you had an idea of a way to make money, you did not have to ask permission. Like you just did it. And right. if it worked out great. And if it didn't work out, then who cares? At least you tried. Like there was no bureaucracy. I mean, there was compliance. Like we did have compliance people, but like there was, there was none of this oppressive bureaucracy that you typically get at a large bank. You know, it was very flat. So hmm. not just large banks, you get that everywhere nowadays. Yeah. I mean, that's pretty much. Yeah. And, but then you have the head of it, a uh, guy by the name of Dick Fold. Um, and what was he like? Uh, I only met him once or twice, you know, uh, he wasn't, he wasn't a super friendly guy, you know, he it just, I, th I think everybody knows his reputation by now. Yeah. Um, the gorilla, so, the gorilla. Yeah. Um, he, I mean, he was an imposing figure, you know, mm. um, but, um, you know, ultimately, you know, Lehman brothers obviously has this like uneven reputation as the bank that crashed the economy and stuff like mm -hmm. that. It really was because of the actions of a handful of people. You know, it was Dick Fold and Joe Gregory and a couple of people at the top that were driving the investments into real estate and mortgages. And, you know, there were other people at the firm that disagreed with that. That's really what Larry McDonald's book was about, yeah, yeah. you know. So, um, yeah, I mean, there were lots of good people at that firm. Mm hmm Another regular on this podcast, Barry Knapp, you may know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. He's on, on here regularly. Um, uh, good guy. All right. Very, very cool. I want to read this part of the book. It's from the first chapter. And by the way, the, uh, the, uh, four letter words, uh, we're kind of throwing that out of the window here. This is going to be, uh, not very, uh, compliant, I guess, but, um, finance is depraved. The further away it gets in the rear view mirror, the worse it looks. Is that referring to your experience or just like in general, like finance in general? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> fuck that i like investing i like the intellectual challenge i like taking risk but i am allergic to bullshit and there is mo more bullshit than ever on wall street where <laughs> what are some of your top bullshit things on wall street um you see you put me on the spot i wrote that like a year and a half ago i'm i'm like trying to remember um it's there, you know, I have a very privileged position, right? 
writing a newsletter because, you know, I can look at the markets sort of in theory as an academic exercise and I can predict the price movements of stocks and bonds and stuff like that. Um, but I don't have to, I don't have to deal with compliance. I don't have to go to meetings. Um, I don't have to deal with risk managers. You know, it's really like I can just have opinions on the markets and just in, in their purest, like, undis like dil undiluted form. And like, my life is great. Um, so. Okay. Fair enough. All right. So it sounds like a lot of bureaucracy and things like that. Yeah. You think it's possible to still get you and you talk about this in your book, how after one day or so you can become educated on a trading floor, you can become educated to almost everything that matters in the world. Do you think that still holds true? Or is there, is there too much? Push? Oh, it, abso it absolutely yeah. holds true. Like, I think what I said was that after six months, a kid yeah, from Staten like Island would acquire so much sophistication that he could have a high level conversation with most world leaders. Yeah, that was it. Yeah. Yeah. And that's that's absolutely true, because like if if you're a trader or if you work on Wall Street, like, you know, have to you have to know a little about a lot of things mm -hmm. and you have to become an expert on things pretty quickly. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, wars right? Like we're dealing with that now, like two different wars. You have to become an expert on that. Politics, not just in the US, but in foreign countries, like obscure banking regulations, like the whole situation with Silicon Valley Bank and, hmm. and uh, you know, the FDIC six to eight months ago, like you literally have to become an expert on everything. And it's cool. Like, you know, a lot about a lot of things. And, you know, just by virtue of my job, you know, I can I can go to the university here in town and have a conversation with academics. And, you know, I'm much better informed than pretty much all of them on all of these issues, mm -hmm. you know, because mm -hmm. I have to know it just by virtue of this job. So, mm -hmm. yeah. And nowadays with the Internet, you have access to all this great stuff whenever you want. You mentioned, you know, the outset having to go to the to land and get, go to get a newspaper. It seems like such a long time ago already, but uh, that was in our lifetime, believe it or not. Uh, but there is a lot of misinformation out there as well. Um, how does one go about that? Like, obviously, if you've been around a little while, you know kind of what's BS and what isn't when you read these news stories. But beyond that, do you have any any guidance maybe for young people about how to how to get past that? Well. I mean, Twitter is a very useful tool, you know, and I use I use Twitter to do a bunch of things, um, but you have to you have to carefully curate the list of people that you follow. So you're getting high quality information instead of low quality, sensationalist clickbait information. Mm -hmm. You know, there's um, like there's some very popular finance accounts. Um, you know, I'll just, I'll just name one that I don't follow, uh, wall street silver. Oh, I don't know if you're familiar with that yeah. one. Yeah. Uh, very sensationalist, very clickbaity, um, very, um, I don't know. I just, you know, I, like, I don't follow stuff like that. Like I follow, you know, basically all the news outlets and the good journalists, there are some bad journalists, but the good journalists, and, um, you know, I, 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 you know, I try, I curate my feed very carefully. Mm -hmm. so. And you think that Twitter slash X is still a good resource now? 
Yeah, I, I like. I mean, look, like it's changed a lot since mm-hmm. the Jack Dorsey days. Mm-hmm. Um, it you know, and I think, look, like I think Elon's, um, Elon Musk's goals of number one, making it the town square for free speech, and number two, making it profitable. I think those goals are incompatible, yeah. and I don't think he realized that when he started. Like, yes. Mm-hmm. Like speech is much less restricted now than it was in the Jack Dorsey days. Uh, But it's also, it's also turned into a sewer of sorts Mm -hmm. and which has made advertisers flee the platform, you know? So I think, you know, from a user experience, I think it's, I think it's better. I think it's better for me. Oh yeah. Um, Mm -hmm. But, you know, from a, from a business standpoint, you know, look like he paid 44 billion for it. And the last I saw it was like valued at 5 billion. Oh yeah. gosh. Wow. Well, luckily he can afford it, but that's still quite a hit. <laughs> wow. Damn. All right. Any, what else? Um, is there any, anything, any other particularly contrarian views you have now on, uh, markets or, uh, you know, on, on careers, maybe, um, you don't, you don't, uh, really thank you for your service, but you don't, you don't speak very all that highly of the military. Um, but that's not to mean that it can't be a good career for some, but, but what else, any thoughts on that? Yeah, it wasn't a good career for me. Let's put it that way. Um, like, uh, I guess, you know, there's a phrase that's kind of thrown around a lot today and it's kind of lost meaning, but somebody who's a divergent thinker, you know, Mm. um, I guess I'm a divergent thinker, you know, like, um, I, (laughs) my personality was not well suited to being in the military. You know, I was very, anti-authority and very rebellious and um it just it wasn't a good fit it's a good fit for a lot of people you know Mm -hmm. i went to a retirement ceremony for one of my classmates in the summer and he had a 26 27 year career as a pilot uh Mm -hmm. very decorated uh just you know had a great career and you know it he was he was a good fit for the coast guard Mm -hmm. like he did Mm -hmm. really really well and i Mm -hmm. made the right choice you know i Mm -hmm. um you know, I got a free education at the academy and I served my five years and I got out and I did something different, you know, mm-hmm. so. You believe in there should be any, some kind of mandatory conscription, maybe not conscription, but some kind of something for kids? No, I don't. Mm-hmm. I don't. Um, I re- I, yeah, I really, I, I, I strongly, I strongly disagree with that. Um, you know, I think that um, the military and the government um, has to compete for talent with the free markets, just like any other business. Right. Mm -hmm. And you can compete for talent a bunch of different ways. Number one, you can pay more. Right. And, you know, government jobs and even military, even the military pays reasonably well, Mm -hmm. you know, but aside from the economics of it, um, if the military or the government is viewed as a reputable or honorable place to work, then people will be attracted to it, you know? So, um, I think it, I think it attracts a certain kind of person, but no, I don't think there should be any, any mandatory service or volunteerism or anything like that. Mm-hmm. So there's no, nothing like, okay, you can't like in Switzerland, they used to have mandatory military for everybody. And now they're like, well, you can, you can do civilian, civilian service, which means you, you know, any, basically anything, but at least as long as you're doing something for like a year or two or whatever, whatever it is. Um, so you don't like that either. Uh, no. No. Okay. Fair. No. Fair. No. What about four-year colleges? Uh, what about them? 
Yeah. Do you think that, do you think that is still, they still have a place in, in today's uh, world? Well, I think there's too many of them. Yeah. <laughs> I think there should be less of them. I mean, look like, I think we should have fewer people going to college. I think too yeah. many people are going to college. I think there's a lot of people. I mean, look like I teach at Coastal Carolina University. You know, I'm a I'm a professor in the finance program, and you have kids that are going to spend one hundred twenty thousand dollars on an education and end up waiting tables. You yeah. know, like that's like that's not a good outcome. Um, so, uh, you know, I there's. You know, you hear about people like Mike Rowe and stuff like that, and they say, well, more people should be in the trades. And mm-hmm. you know, it's a very blue collar thing to say, but it's it's actually true. Mm-hmm. You know, it's actually true. Like, you know, if you if you if if you graduate from high school and start working at an HVAC company and you work there until you're 25 and you save up some money and you take out some loans and you start your own HVAC company, and you build this company into something that has $20 million of revenue, and mm-hmm. then you sell it for a multiple of that, and then you live in a gated community. Like that's mm-hmm. a path to wealth, yep. you know, which is which is a lot better. You know, look, I was at a beer distributor in Wisconsin in you know, this was like five years ago. And the CEO of the beer distributor was telling me that. He was hiring college graduates to do sales for $55,000 a year, and he was paying high school dropouts $110,000 a year to drive trucks. What? Yeah. That's hilarious. So so what we have is an undersupply of people without college degrees and an oversupply of people with college degrees. It's just economics. Hmm. Like, So we need fewer people with college degrees. It's really that simple. Yeah. Or maybe just more people willing to work the trades. I mean, yeah, you want employment certainty, you know, become an electrician, right? Or a plumber. Like there's, you know, those are jobs I can guarantee you, or there's going to be demand pretty much no matter where you are. Yeah. I mean, in, in me personally, like I wouldn't want those jobs. I don't, I don't like working with my hands. Uh, I don't like doing physical labor and I'm a bit more ambitious. I think I can make more money, but I think that's a good path for a lot Mm -hmm. of people, you know? Yeah. hundred percent, hundred percent. What are some common to get a, to preview your next book? And this is just to, to finish up. What are some common, um, you know, mistakes that people make when it comes to finance and investing? And, and what are some of the lessons, I guess, that you would have for them to to be more uh, sane about it? I guess. Well, I think the most common mistake that people are making now is trusting a stock market index to their life savings. Okay. And so we have this we have this cult of indexing where we you know we have Vanguard and they have these ads on like LinkedIn and Facebook and stuff and they have this chart like of stocks going up and down and going to the right and they're like just hold on just hold on okay hmm. well investing in an index is good because the returns are good you know they beat 90% of active managers But when you invest in an index, not only do you get the return of the index, you get the volatility of the index. And the S&P 500 is a pretty volatile index. You know, it's actually not right now. The VIX is at 12, but usually the VIX Hmm. is 16 to 20. So you have basically your life savings in this index or this asset that moves around at 15 to 20 percent a year, which Hmm. is a lot of volatility. And once every 10 or 20 years, it goes down 50%, you know, and you have a huge drawdown. 
And what happens is, is that people cannot withstand these drawdowns. They panic, they freak out, they sell, they stop compounding. And the one thing I'll say is, is that it's not really, it doesn't really matter what you invest in. It doesn't pick something, pick real estate, pick energy, pick financials, pick the market. Doesn't matter what you're invested in. It matters that you stay invested, that you keep compounding over time. And if you're in this asset that moves around 20% a year and you get shaken out once a decade and then you have to buy it back higher and you stop compounding, like that's not a recipe for success, you know? Mm, right. Yeah. But you do think that individual stocks are still, there's still a, uh, a meth, a reason for it? Uh, well, I mean, you know, you can you can invest in individual stocks, but you know, most people when they invest in individual stocks, they open a Robinhood account or mm -hmm. an E Trade account, and they're sort of like, you know, degenerate trading, you know, like tech stocks, and they end up they end up losing money. Like the the dirty secret of the online brokerage business is that when somebody opens an account, they put twenty five thousand dollars in. In 10 years, all the money is going to be gone. Mm -hmm. All the accounts go to zero over time, you know, because people, they don't invest. They just screw around. Mm -hmm. Like if you're going to invest, put in $100,000, buy 30 stocks and then hold them mm -hmm. and don't sell them. You know, there's that story from a Fidelity. And this, I don't know if this is a true story or not, but this was a story that was going around like 10 years ago that Fidelity did a review of they they basically did a review of all their accounts to find out which accounts were the top performing, right? So they had all their millions of accounts and they filtered it out and they found these top performing accounts. You know what they had all had in common? They didn't people trade. were the people were dead. Ah, <laughs> that is ridiculous. <laughs> well, that makes sense because you can't touch it after a while. Yeah, that's crazy. Wow. Well, hang on. If they're dead, doesn't that get handed over to somebody else? Like, isn't there some like process for that? Yeah. I mean, if Whatever, like, yeah. you have to list a beneficiary and yeah. You know. Right. Yeah. But they're still, that's, that's, I mean, that tells you something. Ha. Huh. Jeez. Well, there you go, kids stay invested and don't trade a sucker's born every minute. And you probably can't trade your way to wealth. I hate to break it to you. I think there's, I think there's a very tiny minority of people that can. Yeah. And they're not listening I, to this podcast. So yeah, I think that like 0.01% of people are gifted traders and they can do it. Um, so. Yeah. Right. All right. Jared Dillian of the daily dirt nap in closing, uh, will you tell our listeners how they can find out more about you, where they can get the book? I will put all that in the show notes. So they have it. Uh, you can find me at dailydirtnap.com. If you want to get a subscription, click on the subscribe button. You basically send me an email. If you mention the contrarian podcast, I will give you a large discount. Nice. Right? So just go to dailydirtnap.com, hit the subscribe button, email me. Uh, the book is called No Worries, How to Live a Stress-Free Financial Life. It's coming out January 23rd. You can pre-order it on Amazon or pretty much anywhere the books are sold. Cool. So. I'll, I'll I'll find that link and put it in the show notes as well so people have it. I really enjoyed reading this, those bastards. I didn't even read the whole thing. I'll be honest. I kind of dragged my feet on reading this. I picked this up. I have a signed copy, by the way. That's because I met <laughs> you, Jared, a couple of weeks ago. And 
but I, I kind of dragged my feet in reading it. And then when I was up against this interview, I got into it and I'm glad that I did. And I regret that I didn't earlier because it is really entertaining stuff and I'm looking forward to reading it, uh, the rest of it. So can absolutely recommend that 100%. Everybody else get in touch with Jared if you want to sign up for his service. With that, we'll shut up and leave it there. We'll be back here again in a couple of weeks or so. Speak to you then. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Contrarian Investor Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode. To subscribe to this podcast, simply open your favorite podcast software and search for Contrarian Investor. Follow us on social media by searching for Contrarian Investor on Twitter and Instagram. Send us your thoughts on feedback at contrarianpod.com. We look forward to speaking to you again next time. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.